The following message was given by Nick Kidwell, the senior pastor of Valley Creek Church. For more information about the church, visit us online at www.valleycreek.church. This morning we are continuing on. We have been in a Matthew series for some time now, and we're continuing on in our Matthew series. And in particular, we are um, in the middle of a little mini-series within the gospel that we're entitling On Mission, where the Lord is sending out His disciples. We began this last week uh, with the conclusion of chapters 8 and 9, where the Lord had been working miracles, which had been preceded previously by the Lord's Sermon on the Mount. And at the end of this section, where the Lord has been teaching and preaching and working miracles, And calling his disciples, he ends that section by saying, The harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. Therefore, pray to the Lord of the harvest that he would send out laborers. And so then we enter into this section now where the Lord is doing just that. And anyone who has read any kind of espionage novel or watched any kind of spy movie or military movie, you know that the beginning of any mission has to begin with some kind of good mission debrief, whether it's Mission Impossible and its exploding letters, Star Wars and its 1980s technology as they're looking to see how to destroy the Death Star, or even Toy Story 3 and Crayola drawings of how to escape from Sunnyside daycare. Every mission has this debrief moment, and that's what we're seeing here this morning. The Lord is pulling together his disciples, and he is giving them the instructions for the mission that he's sending them out on. And so he's setting the stage for us. So turn with me now, if you would, to Matthew chapter 10, where we'll be reading verses 1 to 15. And I like to pray every time before we read, because we do need the Spirit of the Lord to help us understand his word. So pray with me, if you would. Father, We come before you this morning and we are aware that we are unworthy of you, but you and your mercy and grace have shown us your kindness through your son, Jesus Christ, and we ask for further mercy and grace this morning that you would open our hearts to your word, that your spirit would make the truth plain for us to see and to receive, and I pray above all, Lord, that you would use your word to change us and to shape us and to mold us, and to envision us for the mission that you have for us. So be with us now, be with me as I seek to um, faithfully communicate your word. Move through us, we pray. In the name of your Son, Jesus. Amen. Matthew 10, 1 through 15. And he called to him his twelve disciples, and gave them authority over unclean spirits, and cast them out and to heal every disease and every affliction. The names of the twelve apostles are these. First, Simon, who is called Peter, and Andrew, his brother. James, the son of Zebedee, and John, his brother. Philip and Bartholomew, Thomas and Matthew, the tax collector. James, the son of Alphaeus, and Thaddeus. Simon, the zealot, and Judas Iscariot, who betrayed him. These twelve Jesus sent out, instructing them, Go nowhere among the Gentiles and enter no town of the Samaritans, but go rather to the lost sheep of the house of Israel and proclaim as you go, saying, The kingdom of heaven is at hand. Heal the sick, 
Raise the dead, cleanse lepers, cast out demons. You received without paying, give without pay. Acquire no gold or silver or copper for your belts, no bag for your journey or two tunics or sandals or a staff, for the laborer deserves his food. And whatever town or village you enter, find out who's worthy in it and stay there until you depart. As you enter the house, greet it. And if the house is worthy, let your peace come upon it. But if it's not worthy, let your peace return to you. And if anyone will not receive you or listen to your words, shake off the dust from your feet when you leave that house or town. Truly I say to you, it will be more bearable on the day of judgment for the land of Sodom and Gomorrah than for that town. This is the word of the Lord. One of the questions we have to ask ourselves anytime we approach a passage of Scripture is, does this apply to me? There are times where we read about unique events and unique commandments from the Lord. For instance, if you think Jesus' command to the rich young ruler in the Gospels to go and sell all that he had and give to the poor applies to any and every person, any and every Christian, we wouldn't have very many, more, very many resources among us in the church. We know that many Christians in the Bible, such as Lydia and others, possessed many resources which they used to the glory of God. At times, we see God in Scripture, just as we do in present day, call specific people to specific tasks. Though, as we will see this morning, when we read the Lord's specific commands to others, often there are underlying principles that carry over and inform our own pursuit of the Lord. Here we have Jesus as he commissions his disciples, but we don't read here that he commissioned all of those around him, not here at least. Our passage here specifically says in verse 1 that he called to him his 12 apostles. So who are these 12? We need to ask this question. Well, I would assume most of us are familiar with the concept of the 12 apostles. For instance, many even who have no association with Christianity or religion have seen Leonardo da Vinci's famous Last Supper painting. And if you can count, you see the number of people in that drawing. But let's take a moment to understand a little better just who this crew was. They were a core group of the Lord's disciples, ones he intimately invested into. And the Lord had various purposes for drawing these 12 men together. These 12 would serve as the early fathers of the church. These were Jesus' closest companions. They were uniquely equipped by the Spirit to teach further and to protect the truth of the gospel following Jesus' ascension into heaven. And they served to represent the new and spiritual Israel that had been born through Christ. Israel, as you may know, had 12 tribes, and just as those 12 tribes were the basis of the people of Israel, now the 12 apostles are, as we're told in the book of Ephesians, the foundation stones the church is built upon with Christ himself being the head, with Christ himself being the cornerstone. In Revelation, we read that the new Jerusalem New Jerusalem has 12 foundations, and on them are the 12 apostles of the Lamb. These 12 apostles represent the true and eternal family of God 
that's not born simply out of blood, but that's born out of faith in God. And while the term apostle, just like disciple, can be applied broadly in the scriptures or more narrowly at times to the twelve, we know from our passage it is very obvious we are distinctly talking about the twelve when the term apostle is being used here. So these twelve are Simon, who's called Peter, Andrew, his brother, James, the son of Zebedee, and John, his brother. Those are the sons of thunder. Philip and Bartholomew, Thomas and Matthew, the tax collector. Now, Matthew is the author of this gospel. James, the son of Alphaeus, and Thaddeus. Thaddeus, you may see in some of the other lists, is an alternate name for another Judas. Simon the Zealot and Judas Iscariot, perhaps the most infamous traitor in history. We don't know much about many of these men, not from the scriptures at least, yet the Lord called them to himself and used them for magnificent purposes. They were made up of fishermen, a tax collector. We know Jesus himself was a carpenter, and one among them who was called a zealot, which was possibly a member of a specific religious political group, but certainly was zealous and devout and known for that in his Jewish beliefs. The Lord had pulled together a mixture of people. So Jesus calls these 12 together, who he'd gathered throughout the beginning of his ministry. We see some of those specific calls, and now he commissions them. So we have to ask, does any of this apply to us? Was this commission simply for this unique set of 12? I believe the answer to that is yes and no. While there are some specifics to these men, we know from the rest of the New Testament that all believers are called to go and make disciples of all nations. Matthew himself, I believe, structured this section so that, yes, we would see a historical commissioning Jesus had for the twelve with some specifics which we'll work through, but also we would be given a reminder of the commission that he has placed on all believers. And in fact, in Luke's gospel, we even see Jesus do a similar commissioning for 72 others. So we know much of this is meant to extend beyond just these few men. So we get then to the debrief. He gathers his disciples around, and though he doesn't use Crayola drawings or 1980s tech to assist him, he makes clear the mission and readies his ambassadors for what lies ahead. Now, there are a lot of things. I tried this week, okay, what is the the most streamlined way to, to pull together all the things we learned from this passage? There is no streamlined way. There are a lot of things we can consider and think about, so I don't have a nice tidy package of main points for us this morning, but rather we're going to walk through nine truths we see that should help us prepare for the mission as well. And these nine points won't be the same length as three points would be, so don't worry. We're not going to be here for five hours. First, we are sent by Jesus. Paul says in the book of Romans, how are they to believe in him of whom they've never heard? And how are they to hear without someone preaching? And how are they to preach unless they are sent? We're told in the book of Ephesians, for we are his workmanship, 
created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we would walk in them. If you are a Christian, if you have accepted Jesus Christ, you are sent on mission. But it's not just that you're sent, you are sent by Jesus. The apostles at this point in time still didn't fully understand who Jesus was or what he was going to do, yet we have that full knowledge now. And so when we see that we are sent by Jesus, we know fully who it is that's doing the sending. It isn't just a representative for God who's speaking, it is God himself. The God of the universe has called each and every one of his children to himself and has graciously enlisted us in this mission. Jeff, when he preached several weeks ago, reminded us that there are some calls you just simply cannot ignore. That's abundantly true to any call that the eternal God of the universe makes on your life. You may feel like you can say, hang on a minute, or not right now, to your spouse, or your coworker or your parent, but when God calls, we need to listen, and we need to respond. So we're sent, and we're sent by Jesus, by God himself. That's the first thing we see. But we aren't just sent, we are equipped as we go. So the second thing we see, we are empowered by Jesus In the Mission Impossible movies, Tom Cruise's character, Ethan Hunt, is sent on some very wild and, of course, seemingly impossible missions. But as we know from the movies, the missions aren't actually impossible, or the movies themselves would be pretty lame if he never accomplished anything he was set out to do. What they really are is missions seemingly impossible without the right tools and equipment. Ethan Hunt is never sent out on mission with his bare hands and self-determination. He has the full backing and support of the MIF, Impossible Mission Force, and all the fancy gadgets and doodads that come with that. I looked up a list of the 10 best gadgets from Mission Impossible movies, and among them were a a gun that looked like a flute, exploding bubblegum, a voice changer, a mask maker, metal-eating foam, climbing gloves, remote-control vehicles, and even eye implants that allow you to scan people's faces so that you know who's a baddie and who's not. The mission truly would be impossible without all these tools. He only makes it through because he's got them. The Lord is sending his people out into the harvest. He's sending them out to teach. He's sending them out to display the kingdom in power through healings and exorcisms. He's sending them out, as we will see next week, as sheep amidst wolves in the need of great discernment. This is a big mission. And left to themselves, the mission truly would be impossible. We cannot save any human being from their sin. We have no power in ourselves to heal any disease. We have no authority to command demons and unclean spirits to do anything. Yet the Lord of the harvest has provided the tools. We have something greater backing us than the impossible mission force. We have the God of the universe who is sending us. When Jesus gives the great commission in Matthew 28, he ends by saying, And behold, I am with you always until the end of the age. In verse 1, we read, 
here, and he called to him his 12 disciples and gave them authority over unclean spirits to cast them out and to heal every disease and every affliction. We have the ultimate weapon in spiritual warfare. We have the name of Jesus. We have the eternal Son of God with us and empowering us. We have the Holy Spirit of God who equips, who strengthens, and who gives good gifts to be used for the mission. We have authority in the name of Jesus to proclaim the gospel and expect people to respond, to pray for healing and expect that God can heal, to rebuke unclean spirits without fear, knowing it's an authority of Christ that we can walk in. I don't understand all of that. We talked about that several weeks ago, but that's an authority through Christ. We are ambassadors for Christ. He empowers us. He is with us. We should never fear or fret, but we should move forward knowing we are known and supported. And I just want to share with you, I'm thinking about this as we're walking through this this morning. I've been so convicted preparing these messages last week, this week. There's just a lot of fear, apathy, all those things in my heart as well. And I'm grateful I don't have to walk condemned as I hear these messages, but that's the Lord, that's the Spirit working on my heart. So if as we're walking through this, you're thinking, oh man, oh, again, I don't do that, I don't, I should do that. Take that as conviction from the Spirit, pray, ask the Lord that you would be aware of this equipping and this power that He has given you, that we might be strengthened to walk in faithfulness despite our weaknesses and our fears. Well, the next thing we see is we are known by Jesus. I like when Scripture lists names, such as the 12 apostles here. It's a reminder to me that God cares about individuals. He knows them by name. Isaiah 43 says, But now thus says the Lord, He who created you, O Jacob, he who formed you, O Israel, fear not, for I have redeemed you. I have called you by name. You are mine. Though Jesus was sending these men out and physically was not with them each individually, the Spirit of God was with them, and God Himself went before them and was ever at their side. Again, He says at the end of Matthew, Behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. We are never like little kids in a crowd who get separated from their parents. The hand gets slipped and you're wandering around and they don't know where you're at and you don't know where they're at. Our Heavenly Father is always holding our hand. And Christ is ever at our side. He knows us and He knows us warts and all. The guys on this list are no superheroes. Thomas doubted. Peter denied Christ. James and John were bold and arrogant. And still, he wants to use them. And he has good works he has prepared for each and every one of them, and the same can be said of us. And even though, in the end, Judas proved himself not to have loved Christ or truly followed him, Jesus, in his mercy, knew that, and he still even used Judas for good. You are known by Jesus. So we are strengthened in the knowledge that Jesus sends, that Jesus empowers, that Jesus knows us. So now let's look at some of the specific instructions of the mission, beginning in verse 5. First, we are not sent alone. Jesus sends the 12 out together. 
In Luke, when Jesus sends out the 72, he sends them two by two. We aren't designed as humans to live or operate in isolation. This principle we see play out throughout all the scriptures, and we see even here the Lord himself draws others close in his mission. Jesus pulled. Jesus could do it all by himself. He didn't need these 12 men, but Jesus desired to pull them close and show them that mission, that life, that that walking with God is a community thing. We're sent out together. Together we hold each other accountable. Together we remind each other of truth. We're told where two or more are gathered in Christ's name, God is with them. That's why at Valley Creek, we value church membership so much. We need to be committed to other brothers and sisters, knowing them, being known by them, serving them, serving with them. We need each other. We are sent out together. Next, we are sent to the lost. We see verses 5 and 6 present for us one of the major points of division between the particular call given to the twelve and our call. We read, go, go nowhere among the Gentiles and enter no town of the Samaritans, but go rather to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. The Gentiles were all those who weren't Jews, and the Samaritans were a much maligned group of northern Israelites who had intermarried with Gentile Assyrians during the time of captivity. They were not pure in Israel's eyes in terms of heritage, and their faith had become a muddled mix of beliefs as well. They had their own center of religious worship. They had their own form of the uh, Old Testament. And so we read here and other places in the gospel accounts where Jesus says, The mission is not currently for the Gentiles or the Samaritans, but for the people of Israel. There were likely several reasons for this. There were practical reasons. This mission was a short one. He was sending them out on. They weren't setting up camp. This wasn't yet the time to expand greatly beyond the borders, so he was keeping them local in Galilee. But there is certainly more to it than that. And I think the main reason for these limitations is that the Messiah and the coming kingdom had been promised to and told of through the people of Israel. And so in the Messiah's coming and the promises being fulfilled, Jesus saw it fitting that the message should start with those who had been waiting for it. And so Jesus says, go to the lost sheep of Israel. Now we know from earlier in Matthew Jesus blesses and commends the faith of Gentiles who approach him. We see in the Gospel of John, Jesus care for a Samaritan woman. So this is not a restriction from interacting with or ministering to Gentiles or Samaritans at all. Also, we know from much in the Old Testament and later in the Gospel accounts, the epistles, and especially the book of Acts, that the Gospel was always intended to ultimately go beyond the borders of Israel. So here Jesus is simply saying the focus of their current mission was to proclaim to the people of Israel first. And so while there is a time and space specific call to these men to stick within the region of Galilee and minister to the Israelites, not a call that is specific to us at this point in redemptive history, The call to go to the lost in general does apply to us all. The disciples are sent to gather the lost sheep of Israel. 
The one who Jesus, the ones who Jesus saw in chapter 9 as harassed and helpless without a shepherd, the ones he had compassion on. But we know that lost sheep are contained not just to Israel. In John 10, Jesus tells the disciples, I have other sheep that are not of this fold. I must bring them also, and they will listen to my voice. So there will be one flock, one shepherd. Most of us in this room are likely from that other fold. (laughs) Not many of us likely come from Abraham. We're sent out to the nations to call lost sheep to the great shepherd. And because he's calling, they will hear his voice and they will come to him. We talked about this last week. The harvest is plentiful. Let's not fear thinking there's no one out there to receive. The Lord is calling people to himself. This he has done for us, and we get to be part of him doing this for others. And we do this primarily by proclaiming the gospel, which is the next thing we see. We're sent to proclaim the gospel. I won't labor long here. We've spoken about this. We spoke about this last week. But our goal is making Jesus Christ the kingdom that he brought and the salvation he offers known to the world. David alluded to this this morning. We want to be known as a church who proclaims the name of Jesus. Verse 7, and proclaim as you go, saying the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Jesus is the king of that kingdom. We have a warning to issue and exceeding grace to offer. As I was meditating on this, I was challenged by a section in Scripture that often challenges me, Ezekiel 33, in which the Lord says, if a watchman is set on a tower and sees invasion coming, the Lord's judgment being brought... If that watchman blows the horn to warn the town, he's not responsible if they fail to respond to his warning. But if that watchman does not blow the horn after he learns of the coming judgment, then though the people die because of their sin, there is blood on the watchman's hands. We are ambassadors for Christ. No, we know not only the coming judgment of the world, But we know more than that, the knowledge of the great salvation that has been made available through Jesus Christ. We cannot keep silent. If we keep silent and do not proclaim the gospel and its message, then we are like the watchman who saw the sword coming but said nothing. May that not be true of us. We have a great and glorious salvation that we get to share with the world. We are to go, we are to proclaim, and we do this through word and deed. We are to proclaim the gospel, and next we see we are to display the gospel. While there certainly was a significant and heightened spirit empowering of the disciples, especially as we see some of their workings throughout the book of Acts, This call to spirit-empowered ministry does extend to us all. Heal the sick, raise the dead, cleanse lepers, cast out demons. These are all visible outworkings of the power of the kingdom that's bursting forth in Jesus' name. In Luke, when Jesus commissions the 72, he tells them as well to heal the sick 
And when they return to Jesus a short time later, after going out, they say, Lord, even the demons are subject to us in your name. So they as well were casting out demons. I, I cannot go long into a theological handling here of the continuation of the Lord's miraculous works displaying the kingdom's power. But for now, I will say, there's nothing in the scriptures that would indicate to us that we should not expect or believe that God can move, cannot move similarly through us and our ministries in miraculous ways. Paul writes to the Corinthian church and acknowledges that the Lord has given them gifts of prophecy and healing and discernment. The Spirit even empowers us for practical works of hospitality and love and generosity, which likewise are displays of the kingdom and the power of God. Therefore, we should be open to the Spirit moving in whatever way He wants in and through us, as God has shown. We are to proclaim the message, and we are to live the message. And we are to pray that the message would be displayed in power, not so that people would believe simply because they have seen some miracle happen, but because miracles and works of the Spirit can be great validating events that can soften hearts and open them up to the message of the cross. We proclaim the cross in word and in deed. And we do all of this Not in some sort of self-serving kind of way, but pouring ourselves out, laying our lives down, following the example of our Lord. So we're not sent alone. We're sent to the lost. We're to proclaim the gospel. We're to display the gospel. Now we're reminded that we're sent to serve, not to be served. Again, we encounter a category that has some specifics to the time of the apostles, Again, this specific mission the Lord was sending them on was a short one, out to the region, likely coming back or coming back frequently. They were dealing more with overnight stays and short journeys. Therefore, the Lord's call not to acquire supplies that we read in verses 9 and 10 was in some ways particular to this specific journey. However, again, there are underlying principles to the whole section that I believe is found in the Lord's statement in verse 8, you received without paying, give without pay. It was common for itinerant teachers and philosophers of the day to not only seek food and shelter from those that they would travel to, but also they would seek financial compensation for their teaching as well. Well, the Lord does not want this. He does not want anything to taint the message that his disciples are bringing and does not want them or anyone else to believe that the good news of the kingdom of God comes at any kind of financial cost or financial benefit. They're not to charge for sharing the gospel because they themselves did not pay to receive the gospel. And so he tells them not to acquire anything extra for their journey not to take with them any excess amounts of what they think they might need. He simply encourages them to receive the necessary meals they're given through the generosity of others and nothing more. And while this was a specific command to these apostles for this short mission, there is an underlying principle that should challenge us. 
But before I get to that, I want to make a necessary but uncomfortable aside for me to make as a pastor who's paid by the church. This passage does not mean that it's wrong for pastors or other full-time ministers to be supported by their churches. It's not wrong for missionaries to gather funds and be supported. This also does not mean that anyone who's a missionary or pastor must live a destitute or impoverished life. That's not what the Lord's teaching here. Again, there was a specific and short-term mission he had for these disciples. Their needs were few on this mission. And what needs they had, he intended for them to trust the Lord to supply through the generosity and hospitality of those who received them. Such hospitality was a common and expected practice in their day. But while the Lord is not saying all of his disciples must live a subsistence lifestyle, scraping by on mere necessities, the principle does apply broadly and should encourage us to consider our needs. And the way that our behaviors towards finances and material goods reflects on our treasure and on the gospel. For instance, Paul in the book of 1 Corinthians says that while it's only right that one who devotes their life to ministry and proclaiming the gospel should receive their living by the gospel... He, knowing that some were charging him of improperly receiving compensation, says, But I made no use of any of these rights, nor am I writing these things to secure any such provision. For I would rather die than have anyone deprive me of my ground for boasting, which is the gospel. What then is my reward? That in my preaching I may present the gospel free of charge so as not to make full use of my right In the gospel, Paul's essentially saying, yes, for my labor, for my effort, for the Lord, it's only right that I be supplied with my material needs. Yet because some among you see this as wrong, I want nothing to stand in the way of the gospel being proclaimed, so I will keep working as a tent maker so that the gospel can go forth unhindered. That's a radical way of thinking for Paul. He was utterly opposed to the gospel being tainted. That way of thinking is utterly opposed to something like the prosperity gospel, whose ministers, it seems, can reach no limit to the amount of wealth that they accumulate for themselves from the pockets of their people. May we never seem to be profiting off of the gospel. We take this seriously at Valley Creek Church. That's why many people have been involved in deciding my salary. That's why I make decisions so as to not even seem to appear to be profiting off the gospel or living a life of excess. That's why men like John Piper have refused to accept royalties from the many books that they have written. They aren't doing it for the money. There's a lot of nuance in this. There's there's discernment. There's no black and whites on how much is too much or when have we crossed the line or how many tunics you know, can you have or this or that. But the principle we follow is that we have received without paying, so we ought to give without pay. Our treasure is the gospel. We are first and foremost servants, all of us. We aren't seeking to be served, but to serve. All of us, let's view our finances and our goods and our earthly provisions this way, that when people look at us, they see that our greatest treasure is Jesus Christ and what he has done, not in what we are accumulating. 
And the last thing that we see in this section, verses 11 to 15, is that we are to be discerning. Jesus tells them that when they enter a town or a village, they're to find out who's worthy in it and stay with them until they depart from the area. Now, this worthy is not righteous or holy, someone who had their act cleaned up. That's not what they're saying. It's someone who's willing to listen, someone who's not hostile to them and the message. He then says when they enter into a house, they're to greet it. In Luke, we read the specific greeting is, peace be to this house. Yet if those in the house will not receive or listen to the message they bring, they're to leave shaking the dust off of their feet and saying, as we are told again in Luke, even the dust of your town that clings to our feet we wipe off against you. Nevertheless, know this, that the kingdom of God has come near. Now, here again, I believe we get some situationally specific commands with, again, a broader application. We must remember the Lord was sending these disciples out on short mission stints with limited time and interactions in mind. These weren't people they'd be seeing over and over again. They were people they had limited interaction with and and limited time to proclaim the news of the kingdom too. So if there was hard-heartedness, lack of reception, hostility, the Lord wanted them to feel the freedom to move along and search for open doors and open hearts. But even with that understanding, we likely think, man, but this pronouncement of judgment seems rather harsh. Should I be shaking the dust off my feet and proclaiming such a statement next time I try to evangelize with no success? And to that I would say, I don't think so. Remember, they're told specifically to go to the lost sheep of Israel. This was taking the news of the kingdom of God to the people of God who had for centuries been prepared for Christ's coming. Their rejection of Christ, his message, and his ambassadors was particularly egregious because they were his people who had been prepared for this moment. Christ wanted the disciples to make sure the people of Israel knew this is no joke. This really is the Messiah, and this really is the kingdom that he is bringing. Typically, Jews would shake the dust off their feet in leaving Gentile areas. And to say that those Jews who rejected the message were worse than the lands of Sodom and Gomorrah, the Gentile cities destroyed for a whole host of depravity, sin, and sexual infidelities, was quite a statement. One that the Lord surely was intending to use to wake up some of those who at first rejected. It was a stark warning Like Ezekiel's vision, the trumpet was being blown to the people of Israel. Now, I don't believe that we have the same strict command to approach mission this way because we aren't in the same time and place of those apostles, we aren't just ministering to the lost house of Israel, and we most often aren't on the same short time constraints that their mission posed. However, again, principles apply. First, We should be looking for open doors to the gospel. We should not let appearance or age or background or any other factor deter us from proclaiming the gospel. And where we see warmth, openness, receptivity, we ought to embrace that opportunity and step into it. The Lord does open doors. I've seen this. Second, we should recognize there will be times to move on. 
I've done evangelism to strangers at times where it's very clear. They are hostile. They want nothing to do with the message. They're not willing to engage. It's not wrong of me in using the Spirit as my guide to move along and depart. I've had friends and family members who clearly do not wish to hear any further of the gospel after I've shared it. I don't have to feel like each and every time I see them, I have to try and try and make another gospel declaration. We cannot force the gospel on someone. The Lord must open doors and make a way. That said, we shouldn't let these principles serve as a cover for our fear and apathy. Sometimes what seems like resistance quickly gives way to receptivity, or a door that was once closed reopens. That's why we so desperately need the Spirit of God to guide us and to help us along the way, praying and asking that the Lord would reveal to us those that He's drawing to Himself that we might speak with boldness and with clarity. And finally, we also should not be afraid to speak a hard word when it's needed. Again, this takes discernment, but there is a horn to be blown because the day of judgment is coming. Though I don't think this strict instruction of shaking the dust off every time we leave the home explicitly applies to our interactions, there will be times we must clearly and boldly declare that to reject Jesus is to reject the Lord of life and will result in eternal separation and judgment for sin. That should be part of any gospel declaration. And at times, there will be times where we have to forcefully make that known to a person. We are doing people a disservice if they never hear of the coming judgment, which is real. There's a lot there. But this is our mission. We're called right along with these 12 apostles. And if you're here and you don't know Christ and you're thinking, man, am I just a project to these people? What's, what's all this about the mission and... The answer is no, you're not a project. The reality is we do want and will be praying for you to see the good news of the kingdom, the forgiveness that's yours through Christ Jesus. We make it our mission that all people, including ourselves, who also once were lost, who also still struggle, who also still don't know Christ fully like we should, we make it our mission that we all should know and love Jesus Christ and the love and compassion that he has for us the salvation that he offers us, that all would enjoy him forever and reach maturity in him. That's my prayer for you. And if I come to know you, that would always be my prayer for you until you come to know the goodness of Jesus Christ because there's no greater good I could hope for you in this world. Church, there are a lot of instructions we received this morning, aspects of the mission that should serve to embolden us, but I pray our main takeaway is that the Lord intends to use us and we need him to lead us and he empowers us for this mission. And he has people that he wants to save. So let's go out together, trust our Lord and see what he does. Pray with me. Father, we thank you for your word. Thank you for showing us these truths this morning. Thank you for sending us. Thank you for calling us. Thank you for involving us in your mission on this earth, Lord. I pray that our joy would increase as we step out in faith. Father, I confess, you know my weaknesses in this area at present. You know, just 
muscles that I feel haven't been stretched for a while. Father, I pray that you would help us all to exercise these muscles. Help us all to realize the gift of the Spirit that you have given us. Father, we pray that many people would come to know Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior through us as we proclaim your word to them. Father, thank you. Thank you for what you've done in our lives. Thank you that we serve as examples to ourselves, that you can break through into hearts and minds. Father, we ask that you would do that for others. We ask that you would send us out as laborers into the harvest. We pray all of this in the name of your son, Jesus. Amen. You've been listening to a message by Nick Kidwell, given at Valley Creek Church. For more information on the church and other messages, please visit us online at www.valleycreek.church.